splash, splash, splash. Apply a little splash. When your windshield's getting dirty, just apply a little splash. When your windshield's full of grime, bugs, dirt, and snow, just use a little splash and be safe on the road. Splash, splash, splash. Apply a little splash. When your windshield's getting dirty, just apply a little splash. See safely on the road when you apply a little splash. Welcome to Let It Roll. We dig tales from the tour bus where the podcast about how and why popular music happens takes a break to talk about our favorite animated music history show from Mike Judge with hosts Nate Wilcox and Justin Bankston. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. This week, Nate and Justin wrap up our coverage of Tales from the Tour Bus Season 2 with an interview with James Brown biographer and Tales from the Tour Bus talking head, R.J. Smith. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll, and we're back digging tales from the tour bus. Mike judges tales from the tour bus, and tonight we've got a special guest joining myself and co-host Justin Bankston, uh, James Brown biographer R.J. Smith, who was featured on the two episodes about James Brown from the second season of Tales from the Tour Bus, is joining us. R.J., welcome. Hey there, glad to be here. So, cool. Tell us uh, what was your experience with Tales from the Tour Bus. Starting from the beginning, how were you approached about participating on the show? I think I got like a text message from uh, Nelson George, the writer Nelson George, who was doing some consulting for them, uh, the whole the whole year's worth of programs, I think. And he uh, asked me if I was interested in in you know participating with the show. And you know, gosh, I love the first season so much. I, I said, of course I would. And uh, you know, he put me in touch with uh, the producers or various people who uh, ended up putting me on a seat in front of a camera. And so who actually did uh, do that interview and sit down with you? Oh, gosh, I'd have to I'd have to look up their names again now. I haven't really talked to them since. But, uh, you know, it was a couple of people that were uh, involved with the program that uh, I never spoke to Mike Judge, however. That's been a consistent thread of the people we've talked to uh, who worked on it. Um, so... Interesting. That's yeah, and and so, but Nelson George wasn't actually there doing the interview. I think he did a lot for the show, but when I uh, they they flew me from uh, I live in Los Angeles, and after we talked to uh, a few times on the phone, and you know they were kind of looking at what timing and stuff would work, they end up flying me to to New York to flying me to New York to do the interview, and so. Uh, Nelson, who's been spending a lot more time maybe in Los Angeles than New York these days, well, I didn't see him when I got to New York City. Cool. And so in the show, you've got about five bits where they quote you and and animate you on the screen. How much more of an interview did they do with you? And how how drastically did they cut down your contribution? 
Oh yeah. Well, we, we talked for hours. I mean, it seemed like hours. It probably wasn't, but you know, uh, I, I, I went, uh, I was in a hotel and walked down the street to where the uh, studio, the, the sound studio or the, the, the place they had set up to do all their recording, which is very close to where I was staying in Midtown. And guys, it probably just took about two or three hours. It seemed like nine to noon or something. And, you know, it was like a little, um, oh gosh, you know, like the kind of studio where you could do, uh, the kind of show you're doing right now, of course, or, you know, maybe record a commercial or something. And, uh, it, you know, they just had a couple of cameras and there were instruments behind me. There was some guitars and some sound equipment there. And, you know, we just kept talking and they were like, um, they were just throwing questions at me and it was clearly like, uh, casting as wide a net as possible. And in fact, there are probably times when they were asking me to kind of retell stories from the book and I might not remember some of the details and they would kind of remind me of the details and, you know, we'd do it again. And so it was really like looking for great stories and, and maybe new stories that I hadn't told in the book. And, um, you know, they kind of culled from, from, several hours worth of conversation, you know, uh, very, um, they took the tweezers out and got exactly what they were looking for, I guess. Yeah. And it seems like they, what they were looking for was history moments from the history of James Brown life that they didn't have anyone else to address. So things like about his early childhood, the brutality of his father, you know, the soldiers tossing coins to him to teach him, uh, you know, that he was dancing for uh, during world war two in Georgia. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then controversial stuff like the arrest and the, the, the incident with the insurance seminar in his office and the chase and his prison sentence. Um, yeah. Were you surprised when you saw the final episode with what they chose to use you for? Well, I mean, not really. It, it was more like, um, you know, I, 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 no, it's always interesting to see what they do use and what they don't use. And you kind of feel like, well, maybe certain stories were obviously their keepers and maybe they had somebody else that ended up telling the same story. So they didn't use that, but I wasn't particularly uh, startled by any, any single one of them. Exactly. No. I mean, they they, they I think they did a really good job. Yeah. Well, it sort of makes sense. Go ahead. Justin. It sort of makes sense that with your book being sort of considered an authoritative biography that they would lean on you for some of the sort of connective tissue to sort of tie the story together, you know, over his whole yeah. life. Well, I think that's right. I mean, beyond like stories that they don't have firsthand sources for, uh, I think when they're looking for somebody who can, you know, they can't, I, I could, I can often talk about uh, things that they don't have from anybody else in other regards as well. So yeah, I think you're right there. And so I'm going to steal Justin's question, but were any of these anecdotes that other people told on the show new to you? Did you learn anything from watching the show? Ah, um, I can't think of any particular thing now, but I, I feel like, you know, part of what was really great about it was when they, you know, but by the selection of things that they did use and the order they put it in and, and the way things look, um, e even if not every single thing is like a revelatory or, or brand new, it's sort of like by the by the way they edit and and assemble information, uh, a certain kind of feeling about the guy comes across, or or their version of James Brown comes across, and and their version of what the music means comes across, 
And that's totally valid, of course. And, and what they did in that regard is really cool. I thought, you know, yeah, their James Brown really seemed like a living, you know, uh, entertaining, uh, larger than life figure. So I'd say like their James Brown might be a little different than mine in some ways, or maybe from yours, but theirs is very real. That's for sure. Yeah. They the yeah. captured him. And you know, the show, the season is themed around funk and, Obviously, yeah. James Brown was a huge innovator, maybe the innovator of funk, but that's a pretty, it's only about half his career because he was the godfather of soul before, you know, he invented funk. Do you feel like that the yeah. focus on funk kind of distorted, gave a slightly distorted perspective on James Brown? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think by focusing on the funk era and w what they call funk, um, yeah, you're, you're kind of looking at uh, a, a chapter or, you know, maybe a huge chapter or several chapters, but in the guy's life rather than the whole life itself. So, so that's definitely true. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's an argument to be made that, uh, Oh, I don't know how else, what, what you'd almost have to, you could do a whole James Brown season actually. Yeah. easily. <laughs> maybe that, maybe that's what they should have done. Or, uh, you know, maybe, um, just some, some more, uh, imaginative seasonal presentation that would, kind of take in the whole person but you know funk is as good a way as any to get james brown in there i guess absolutely and it definitely helped sort of tie the james brown bootsy collins george clinton sort of thread through this season to be sort of focused on that funk band oh of yeah his career. yeah and and funk is so i mean uh, you know all these sounds uh rhythm and blues and soul are, you know certainly are alive today too in lots of ways but i think there's a w argument to be made that funk is just a lot more of a living thing or you know to a, certainly the younger generation maybe a lot more of a living thing than you know say rhythm and blues is by and large so you know in that grounds it seems like this guy walks among us uh by presenting him as a funk artist rather than uh you know maybe as a rhythm and blues artist or something yeah, or a soul singer. And so I, I'm guessing yeah. you watched the whole rest of the season. I think I have. I think I've seen the whole season, yeah. Mm -hmm. And they asked me to talk about Bootsy. Uh, I, I feel like I did some conversation with them about Bootsy and George Clinton as well. Yeah, I was going back through today, and I didn't see you on any of those um, at a quick glance. So, And I particularly looked at the Bootsy one, and I was wondering if you were going to be on that one as well i mean i think i, I was a little bit i can't i'd have to look again but i think i was a little bit but they were the main thing was james brown yeah and and the and the connective tissue between what did you think of the overall arc of the funk season and and the way that they the choices of the other performers that they chose to focus on and the way they arranged the sequencing of the episodes i mean i think it's great in I mean, you can't go wrong talking about, you know, Bootsy and, 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 and James and, and, and George Clinton and everybody. So it, 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 it makes perfect sense that way. I mean, I guess I feel like funk is such a funk. Is, I guess I, you know, if I want to get on my 
music writer's high horse, I might say, that funk is, it, it, it was about some individuals who made great funk rather than about funk itself, of course, because funk is about, you know, a lot of musicians whose names we don't know or don't know as well as those guys say. And it's not about reckless activity on or off the tour bus so much. So I guess I feel like it give a, a distorted picture of the music maybe, but definitely not a distorted picture of the distorted individuals who made much of the music. <laughs> That's a good way Indeed. to describe them. Um, the thing that struck me about this one versus the country, the country season that preceded it, and I think both of them are true that they're they're not about the music. I mean, like the country season of Tales from the Tour Bus is not an attempt to match Ken Burns's, you know, country yeah. documentary, and the same thing with the funk season, <laughs> but. There are some certain commonalities, and one thing that struck Justin and I when we were talking about this season episode by episode is that the funk season on the whole might be a little bit more of a downer because of the personal arcs of the stories of, and I'm thinking of Rick James and James Brown in particular, because both of yeah. them have you know, a pretty simple rise and fall narrative whereas you know like Waylon Jennings in the first season kind of has ups and downs in both episodes but but both Rick James and James Brown just hit this hit the rocks pretty hard in the later half of their life you know with with yeah. drug addiction and and the criminal justice system I mean do you feel like that that is like a indirect commentary on just the inequities of American life and that white people get just an extra break and black people do not, or is it just sort of the random chance for how these particular people's lives played out? Well, that's a great question. That, that, that's, that's really interesting. I mean, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, on the one hand, you know, the iconic image of uh, George Jones on the, on the lawnmower. I mean, that's just pretty damn funny. <laughs> and <laughs> that's, that's a great image uh, that you have every right and can feel a hundred percent fine about laughing at. <laughs> and, uh, if he fell off the riding mower, he's not going to hurt himself. But <laughs> then when you have somebody like, you know, like James Brown, you know, with, with shotguns at his head and, you know, being pulled out of his car and, and, you know, you know, in the middle of the night, uh, it's, 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 it's definitely not so funny. And what could have happened and what did happen to these guys uh, is, is not always so funny. And I think that was a, a fine line that, that, to my mind, these, the people on the show, you know, did a really good job with. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if other people felt differently. And, and I think they might have some valid things to say in that regard, too, that uh, inviting laughter uh, is is always going to be complicated when somebody, you know, when it involves drug use and criminal activity and, and, and America's racial history. So I think, and I think that was, I mean, in the book, I talk about this and, you know, I mean, after, after the whole high speed chase crisscrossing across state borders that, that James Brown had, you know, I mean, he was a joke. I mean, I don't feel that he was a joke, but people treated him like a joke, uh, whether it was Saturday Night Live or uh, Kenneth Cole billboards selling shoes by uh, making fun of James Brown. Or um, I think, what was that? The, the, the Smoking Gun website that 
published his mugshot, uh, they did it as a joke, and that's pretty offensive. And so I don't think the show did anything like that, but um, but they had. I'm sure they were thinking about these issues when they put this material together, and were probably trying even harder, maybe than with the likes of some of the country stars. I, I, that's just a guess, but I think they 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 had to think harder and longer about showing these individuals not as cartoon figures, even Bootsy, uh, but as human beings. Yeah, I think the the media has long been pretty comfortable lampooning country music and country music personalities. Uh, and so yeah. I think that same license applied to season one of, of Tales from the Tour Bus, but you gotta, you just have to tread a little more carefully, you know, with season two. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly who all watches the show. I don't know what the the numerical breakdown or the racial breakdown is, but you know, I suspect I'm guessing, but I suspect there's a big chunk of the audience that feels like they're watching, uh, in some sense, uh, and, and us in quotes when they're looking at the country, the foibles of the country music performers, and maybe they feel a little more sense of a them when they're looking at the funk individuals. And so, yeah, I mean, I think they had to be thinking about that when they were doing the, the first season and then the second season. Yeah, quite possibly. One one thing that struck me, you know, uh, read the book and we, we talked about it on the, the regular podcast and then watching these, there's such a clear line between young, clean and sober James Brown and older stoned and messed up James Brown. And to me, it like correlates so closely with the death of his son in that car wreck. And mm. they didn't really bring that out in the show. And I was wondering, you know, if you thought that the death of his son was the pivotal tragedy that shaped the rest of his life, or if you think it was just one of many contributing factors. Wow. Well, I mean, on one level, it definitely was a pivotal moment. Uh, and, and I feel like he both loved his son and had a hard time bringing that son all the way into his life and felt protective and fearful about his son becoming an entertainer and becoming part of show business in some regard or other. And and he didn't know how to be a dad in a sense because he didn't have much of a dad when he was a kid. So all those issues are a part of it, but I've lost my thread of thought here a little bit. But at the, also, the, the, I think at the same time that James, I mean, he was driven to be loved by an audience, by the women in his life, by the band. He wanted to be worshipped by the musicians behind him. And I also feel like that's just exhausting. And he never, he had a hard time, rather, feeling that love from an audience, from a DJ, from Bobby Bird or from his wives. And I think over the course of his life, um, he was kind of spiraling downward in a general sense, just because of those forces that were always there, even before his son passed. And, you know, one thing that Justin and I discussed a lot when we were doing the show, both the first season and the second season, is when you're dealing with people like James Brown and Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, comes to mind as well that that these are violent men and that they physically hurt people in their lives 
and yeah. you want to tell their story and you have a limited amount of time and you're talking about this person because they contributed a lot. You know, I mean, we talk about James Brown because we love his music and he made millions and millions of people happy and he inspired yeah. hip hop and et cetera, et cetera. So how do you feel like they did as far as balancing, you know, the good qualities, the great qualities of James Brown with the, you know, villainous qualities of James Brown? Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, they, they do go into the music and they do go into the freshness of it. And I, I, I know everybody doesn't feel this way, but most of us do. And all the good people do. I just feel like if you touch on that or you, you, you crack those doors open and you're in, <laughs> I mean, if you, if you, if you're watching James Brown or the James Brown story, and you're hearing some of that music or you're hearing about the connections that that music had with other people's lives. And, uh, and it's, you, you can't, if you're human, it's going to, it's going to, you're going to feel something. So, so they've got that going for them. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's an alchemy because there's so much craziness in his life and so many, uh, so many illegal things and so much violence and, uh, upon him and, and definitely so much violence that he brought upon other people, mental violence, physical violence. And, uh, there's a lot of choosing that you have to do, uh, in, in a program or a article or a book or whatever, a movie to, uh, make the person seem human and true to them, true to who they were, but to not have an audience hate them. Or to have them, or laugh at them. Yeah, you don't want to do an Albert Goldman "Lives of John Lennon" kind of treatment. I, I, I don't think. Oh, and, right. You know, yeah. which was just a vicious, uh, an entirely unsympathetic attack. And I think you're right because you know the first episode of the James Brown. As soon as they show him dancing, it's <laughs> like yeah. you know, like you say, if you're human, which is probably like four out of the nine people on the Supreme Court. <laughs> <laughs> the yeah. United States right yeah, now, right. you know, would like would see James Brown dancing and be like, okay, this guy contributed something, you know, this is incredible art, kinetic art, and, and you know, the, the way the music ties into it. So I think that the audio-visual medium, I mean, video is a great way to tell stories, and with the animation, they can also, like the, the scene in the Bootsy Collins episode when James basically turns into like the heat miser from the old Christmas cartoons, you know, <laughs> yeah. the volcano. Yeah. It's a way to lighten that. And, and, you know, yeah. it's not as, as brutal as, you know, say film or a reenactment of him hitting Tammy Terrell with a hammer or something might be. And, and yeah, you know, that's right. I mean, that's, they're, they're dealing with bringing those verbal or mental images to back to life in a way, visual life. And when you do that, oh my God, yeah, it's, it's just more real. Yeah, I think there's a... Even, that, even animation, it's more real. I'm sorry. Yeah. There's like a deep-seated, I think, human tendency to want to forgive a genius. and But to do that, you have to show their genius. And I think they, you know, they did a great job of of like you guys said, just bringing across James Brown as this primal force of nature. And then you're, you kind of want to forgive him anything that happens because he's just like a hurricane or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that, that, that sounds right. Yeah. And to get back a little bit to the meta sort of 
conversation about your role on the show. Did they ask you, did they try to leverage you to get in touch with any of his bandmates or anybody else that was on the show? Did you bring anybody in that ended up being featured? I don't think so. I asked them if they talked to this person or that person and uh, a couple times and, and they, they knew all about them. And I feel like there's a person too, they were trying to reach out to. And I might've, I don't think I did much to help them get in touch with somebody they were looking for. My sense is they had a pretty good, um, they, they were doing pretty well as it was at that point. And I don't remember them saying, Oh my God, can you help us find, you know, so-and-so cause we really need to get their voice in here too. So I think they, you know, I think the show and maybe having people like Nelson or, you know, Jimmy McDonough in the first season, like kind of come in and, and help them, uh, uh, round people up. I think, you know, and, and and having a chance to get get yourself animated. Who doesn't want to see that? <laughs> uh, they, they did all right. And so, was there a shock of recognition when you saw yourself rotoscoped and colorized? Oh my God! Well, I'm going to tell you this story. I I don't mind telling you, but uh, it, it's a shock and uh, it's the it's a delight. But it's definitely like, oh my God! Well, I can't deny it, but. The, you know, and I asked my my wife and my daughter, and they said, "Yeah, that that looks like you, Dad." But uh, <laughs> uh, I go to these meetings, and I don't. I mean, I don't mind. I I, I don't mind saying this. Uh, I think it's fine. But I go to these meetings that, uh, well, uh, anonymity is respected, and uh, that's why they call them anonymous. And uh, I went to. I'm, I'm here in, in in L.A., and there's lots of people in the industry and just music fans and everything. And I went to a meeting one night and a guy tapped me on the arm afterwards. He says, I think I saw you on TV the other night, but, but you were, you were a cartoon. <laughs> and I said, yeah, man, that, that was me. <laughs> so uh, I guess, I guess they did a really good job. <laughs> my, my dog's barking now. So I guess the dog agrees as well. <laughs> That's such a great story. So, there were a few people that were sort of notable by their absence. I'm thinking particular several key members of the band that are still living. Were you surprised by any of those people not participating in the show? Because I'm sure they were reaching out. Yeah. I, 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 the, the trick there is, is that I don't know who – I'd have to see the whole list again and kind of think of it holistically. And then you just had the issue of did somebody not appear because – you know, they, they didn't get asked or did somebody not appear because, um, you know, they think, well, this is my chance to, to ask for some money and see what I can get. And which, which is definitely real and, and legitimate and people who haven't been paid for their contribution, you know, the rest of their lives, you know, here's somebody, here's one more, uh, you know, entertainment, uh, conglomerate that wants, uh, wants them to sit in front of a camera for maybe a small stipend or something. And I mean, I get why that is of course, but uh, I can see why somebody might feel like this is my chance to get paid when I'm deserved to get paid. So, so I just don't know the dynamics behind who was in and who wasn't, but I mean, my God, I could have had it. I could, it could have been twice as long a season. And, you know, when you're talking about George Clinton and Bootsy and, and James, uh, all, all those people that just had so many amazing uh, uh, supporting role characters in their in their story. Yeah, you want to see more of them. For sure. And I'm sure you followed uh, what's been going on with the James Brown estate. 
since his death. And, oh God! Yeah. So, any any comments on that unfortunate situation? It's the saddest damn mess. It's you know, I mean, it's just it's not it's not fair to James's family. It's not fair to James. Uh, it's a, a textbook example of how not to have things happen. And although I don't want to write it, I mean, it was a chapter of the book, but it's, it, that whole story is like so Dickensian and ongoing and it's just sucking every last cent out of the James Brown estate uh, and putting it in the hands of lawyers and court appointed representatives and, you know, shifty politicians in South Carolina. It's just the textbook example of how not to handle an estate. And, you know, on some level it's true to the way James ran his business. One hand didn't know what the other hand was doing, but it's sad. Yeah, it's it's an amazing drag, and and you know for those who aren't in the know, James Brown established a trust before he died, and willed virtually the entirety of his estate to this trust with the goal of uh, educating poor children in South Carolina and Georgia, I, I believe both yeah. white and black, and and so far, uh, no kids have been educated, and one of his attorneys or an accountant, I think, did some jail time, although. Yeah. From what I can tell, it, it seemed a little trumped up to me, but yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's it's hard to say. But I, if, if you think that that guy that did the jail time was uh, is, is responsible for everything that went wrong, or is the bad guy, then that would be a huge mistake. And yeah, if he's looking like the fall guy for for everybody else and for the the theft of what's wrong with this the estate in general, then that's, that's not right. But, uh, yeah, it's just, I mean, with so many kids and so many people that were owed money from, from James Brown, uh, and now so many lawyers involved who, who have been, you know, billing for it for years. Uh, it's, it's easy to just imagine it going on until there ain't no money anymore. And that's and that's really a drag. And so I hate to end it on a bummer note, but any final thoughts about the James Brown and the Tales from the Tour Bus? Wow. Well, um, you know, I mean, it's just uh, I, I'm dying to see who the, what what the third season is like, of course. And uh, it's you know, it's great to have Bootsy. It's great to have Bootsy alive and with us and 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 talking. And, you know, to have him be animated is kind of a redundancy. I mean, I feel like they probably should have just actually actually done some documentary footage of Bootsy just to make him seem kind of stranger than he already does seem and more colorful. But uh, other than that, no, it's, it's, it's all good. <laughs> well, cool. Well, uh, this is R.J. Smith, author of The One, the definitive biography of James Brown. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. This was fun. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at LetItRollCast. This is our last Thursday episode for a bit, but make sure you check out this past Monday's episode of the seventh season of Let It Roll when Nate talks to Simon Reynolds about retromania, is pop culture's past eating its present. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, 
And you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Tales from the Tour Bus can be viewed on Amazon.com if you subscribe to Cinemax. This is Brad Page from the I'm in Love with That Song podcast, inviting you to join me as we explore a different song each episode, discovering what makes these songs great. The performances, arrangements, and the production tricks and techniques are all part of creating those magic moments that turn a good song into a great one. On this podcast, we take a deep dive into each song, listening to all those nuances that came together to make it a great song. Our journey takes us across the musical map, from the Beatles and the Stones to Aretha Franklin and Tom Petty, Kiss, The Cars, Todd Rundgren and Roxy Music, from Badfinger to Al Green, Stevie Wonder to David Bowie, from Aerosmith to the zombies. We listen to it all on the I'm in love with that song podcast. You may be unfamiliar with some of these songs and some of them you've probably heard a hundred times, but I bet if we listen closely, we can discover something new. So join me on the I'm in love with that song podcast and let's listen together because I think you're going to love these songs too. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.